from High Top Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Justin Higginbottom. This is your news for Wednesday, November 2nd. I'm in the Book Cliffs, a remote mountain range in eastern Utah, with Shannon Boomgarden. She's an archaeologist who studies how the Fremont civilization was potentially farming in this dry, high-elevation environment around a thousand years ago. The Fremont ate a lot of corn, and Boom Garden is testing how much water it takes to grow that crop here. She's showing me a garden where she gives different amounts of water to plants. As you can see, this on this end they're getting watered very little, and they're not getting enough rain supplemental to grow, and then they're getting more and more water as you move north. She first tried the experiments mistakenly with a corn that didn't do well in high elevations. She needed something more hardy and more drought resistant. You know, we're using a variety that is adapted more to a dry climate, where if you look around at the farms in this area, they're not, they're growing modern hybrid sweet corn or seed corn that you'd have to water more. So she reached out to the organization Native Seeds Search. They provided her with the seeds of Tahona Odom. That's an extremely fast-maturing, desert-adapted corn from southern Arizona, something closer to what the Fremont would have farmed. It's not only researchers like Boom Garden making use of native seeds search. The seed bank located in Tucson is increasingly a valuable resource for private and commercial farmers. We steward about 1,800 varieties of seeds of arid-adapted, open-pollinated, and heirloom seeds the majority of which are the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash. That's the nonprofit's executive director, Alexandra Zamiznik. She works with seeds that come from southern Utah all the way to Guatemala, traditionally grown by around 50 different indigenous communities. Other than working to collect and replace seeds in their collection, they also work with growers to spread these unique crops. We have a bunch of programs that are seed access programs, to ensure that these seeds are, are being grown out by communities in the southwest and especially communities of origin. Zamiznik says they've seen a big spike in demand, starting around a couple years ago during the pandemic. More people were staying at home and wanted a hobby, but she says there were also those worried about food security and the future of agriculture in a drier southwest. At the same time, with concern over climate change and the extended drought, um, that our region has seen and other regions in the world, there is a lot of interest in drought-adapted crops. Most of Native Seeds Search's crops are drought-adapted and so require less water than those vegetables you usually see at the supermarket. Zamisnik says her organization is also combating a loss of knowledge in seed selecting that first created these plants. There is a lot of loss in knowledge on how to, how to select for seeds for success. That's what a lot of previous stewards of seeds, seed savers, and farmers did for generations, which is why you have these incredibly adapted seeds. Rural farmers in the Southwest are trying to keep up with a changing climate. She thinks that looking at what worked in the past could help farmers prepare for the future. A public memorial and reflection took place last month in Colorado to explore the truth of Boulder's role in the Sand Creek Massacre. The event came days after the announcement of a significant expansion of the National Historic Site in southeastern Colorado. 
For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KGNU's Shannon Young has more. Federal officials announced the acquisition of nearly 3,500 acres of land to expand the National Park Service's Sand Creek Massacre National Historic Site in Kiowa County. The significance of it is, is that we can encompass all the area around the, the site. And it also gives the Park Service a chance to um, provide a, a better facility for, for the public to go and see where this event took place. Fred Mosqueda is an Arapaho elder from Oklahoma who has been working as a tribal representative in public education efforts and in talks with officials. He was at Wednesday's ceremony at the Sand Creek Massacre site and is part of a group remembering 1864. From Fort Chambers to Sand Creek, the future is now. It's an oral history project of singing, storytelling, and dialogue. It connects the dots between the massacre at Sand Creek and the Fort Chambers garrison in present-day Boulder County, where U.S. troops trained for the attack. We do this so people can know our history. What happened at Fort Chambers? Why is it important? What happened? You know, what's the trail? What, 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 what was all going on in Colorado? Why were we there instead of in uh, Cherry Creek where we started out? The Sand Creek Massacre was a turning point in relations between this area's native inhabitants and the white settlers that had been illegally establishing homesteads in lands protected by signed treaties. The discovery of gold in Colorado created an additional financial incentive for land grabs through violent displacement campaigns. U.S. Army troops trained at Fort Chambers attacked what was supposed to be a protected encampment of around 750 Cheyenne and Arapaho people. Of the 230 people killed on November 29th of 1864, more than half were women, children, and elders. While the wounds from the massacre run generations deep, Fred Mosqueda says the oral histories that have been passed down also have the power to heal. And I think in telling and education, educating our, our younger ones to what happened and to show them where we're at today tends to heal, tends to not. It's still, you know, when you go to Sand Creek, you, you're going to feel this, this feeling, you know, of, of dread almost like that's what I always feel like. I'm really sad there. But. You know, it doesn't change for me, but maybe for the younger ones coming after me, maybe they'll be able to see it as the triumph between tribes and the United States government and that their understanding finally are people and that, yes, we are people. Yes, we can do things to help tell this story. And in doing so, we become better you know, along with everybody else. And it's not just the descendants of victims and survivors who stand to benefit from greater knowledge of this area's history. Marion Murphy works with local farmers and sustainable agriculture initiatives in Boulder and is a member of the Remembrance Planning Circle organizing the Remembering 1864 event. This is an opportunity for me to heal myself personally. So that is what drew me in. Now that I am learning more about it, of course, I see many ways in which I can continue to co contribute. But right now, it is just that we are part of a group called the Remembrance Planning Circle. 
and we have put together this event and uh, really allow people to emotionally absorb um, what has happened here and also really to think about our future because that is where we're headed, the future, which should be much more community-inclusive um, opportunities for everyone. Tess Eckert, also a member of the Remembrance Planning Circle, was born and raised in Boulder, but says she did not grow up learning the history of the area's original inhabitants. I think for me, the urgency for everyone, whether they're Indigenous or not, or interested in Indigenous history and rights or not, is really that it has it has to do with the bigger story of our humanity and and also the crisis that we're facing on the earth right now. Some say that a step towards righting the wrongs of the past must involve the return of stolen land. The Sand Creek Massacre historical site opened in 2007 on land privately purchased by Jewish casino owner Jim Druck, who drew parallels between the genocide of the Holocaust in Europe and the mass murder and displacement of indigenous people within the present-day United States. Druck deeded the land to the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes of Oklahoma, which created a trust with the National Park Service. In Boulder, the open space around the Fort Chambers site is also a topic of discussion for land back. Some area cities have either signed or are exploring sister city arrangements with the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes. Last year, the city of Longmont signed a sister city agreement with the Northern Arapaho tribe of Wyoming. Authorities in Broomfield have also started similar discussions. We want to be thriving. We want to be part of the communities. We want to be partners with Colorado and these cities. Arapaho elder Fred Mosqueda says active partnerships and the return of land is what he'd like to see more of in the future. I would love it if the, if the Cheyenne Arapahoes were able to, to somehow work with the cities to become partners somehow, either be an economic development or uh, politically or some way to become partners with these cities in Colorado so that we could have a place to go back to, you know, that, that would help support our people. Thanks to Shannon Young at KGNU for that report. That story was shared with us via Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public media stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and New Mexico, including KZMU. And that's the KZMU News for Wednesday, November 2nd. Get your community power journalism Monday through Friday at noon and 7. You can also find KZMU News anytime online at kzmu.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.